Gerard Wallace to his left, and he's on his way. 10, 9, 5, 3, cut down! Wonderful try! We have a mole, Jim. Digs like a demented mole there. He just bust through the defence. Just watch this. Good evening and welcome to the Mullcast. Good evening. Good evening. We're starting off with the most righteous man in rugby, Bruce Craig, and his uh, insinuation that um, Bath was robbed and should have a replay um, against Toulouse. But if you ask me, he did it for the wrong reason. He was saying there was two seconds left on the telly clock and uh, it apparently doesn't necessarily match the, um, the match clock at the stadium. But... What he was really robbed about was the fact that Toulouse should have been playing with 13 men, according to the refs. And then, of course, this week, the refs dished out two controversial first-half yellow cards. The first half in the in the extra cast game as well, yeah? Well, uh, a, a red. So, yeah, red red cards. Uh, so the red cards were, were dished out this week. And um, the argument I'm putting forward is that um, the refs aren't protecting the players so much as protecting themselves after ignoring the missives on on high tackles last week, they suddenly come into force when there's a bit of a media backlash and maybe a backlash from their bosses as well. I think it's the backlash from the bosses is the what Bruce Craig... I don't know if Bruce Craig was ever going to pursue that and tie it the entire season um, in some court of sporting human rights or wherever he was going to go. Um, but I think it was certainly... I don't know, some are saber rattling and and serious legal intent. Um, and Bruce Craig is one of the guys that I associate with the, the premiership, with uh, McCafferty, with the split away from the Heineken Cup as was. Um, and he, I think he's one of the, the flag bearers of, of the change that's, that's occurred over the last five to ten years. Um, and I think he did worry the guys in the EPRC, um, and certainly refs were miles stricter this time around. I think there's there's another concern for rugby apart from just the immediate, and that's the long term. We've talked about it, and it's it's the threat of a, a class action or some sort of lawsuit coming down the tracks um, about headshots. I would have been. I, I've changed my mind on this in the last oh, six months. Um, from thinking that Wayne Barnes was being too strict on marginal tackles in the Heineken Cup final to seeing uh, the French guy whose skull got fractured, Remy Tellers. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And just knowing like that the All Blacks go headhunting and they're the best at making it, making themselves look innocent, they're the best at looking accidental. Um, but, I mean, that's... Remy Grasso, sorry. Remy Grasso. That is, that's, like, it's just a disaster waiting to happen. Well, it happened. <laughs> um, so it, it it's it, it's a matter for rugby to to clamp down on, and people making arguments about Cipriani and shouldn't he or shouldn't he like the, that ship has sailed. It's that's that's the way it is now. I absolutely agree that the the ship has sailed, and we discussed this briefly earlier about Jerome Kaino, who's played probably for a quarter of a century under a certain set of laws and then you know he's playing this season under a different 
a, a different application of the same laws because as Peter Oman, he said in his um, in his post Gloucester remarks, high tackling has always been illegal. Yeah, we've never been coached to tackle high. So Kano has has been a you know a phenomenally successful player, and he's played at the highest level for a long, long time. And he's played at the highest level as a classic blindside, whose physical power, explosive power, and hitting power has been massively valued. Um, two years ago, his his hit would have... It still would have been seen as borderline, but the, I don't think a siding commissioner would have said, that's a red card and you get a five-week ban. I think they would have said, yes, he's been cited for a high tackle. We feel the yellow card was adequate. Mm. The difference between a yellow card, uh, which is you know a 10-minute... Tariff and five weeks, which is like I don't know how many six ten, week ban, but he got let off. Yeah, and I don't know how many I don't know how many ten minutes that is in five weeks. You know, it's an enormous additional penalty. Uh, so kind of coming to the end of his career, and maybe I don't think it's ever a case of being uh, too late for a guy to learn new tricks because realistically, he knows. He knows how to tackle lower, and and the next time he will tackle lower, and I think that's the intent of this. What well, well, you know is possibly a harsh sanction is that this is the way to get the message across. They don't want borderline. They don't want. They certainly don't want high shots. They don't even want borderline shots anymore. And it, it's a law that's designed to protect the game because the the law is designed to protect the ball carrier. And most of the injuries in tackling happen to the tackler. So you've... The tacklee or the tackler? The tackler. So they did... There was... The Science of Sport were the ones that they published what I read during the uh, summertime. I think I think it's pretty sure it's Ross Tucker. Um, and the we, we can tweet the link, I suppose, is the best thing to do. But you're looking at, like, concussions happening 26 to one ratio more than in the kick contest 76 percent of hias and the risk is skewed to the tractor the law protects the carrier um so like no high shots and all that sort of stuff and, and you can understand why that is um and then you've got the the championship in england this like the second tier uh trial in that lower tacker tackle height mm-hmm. so all the momentum it's only it's only going one way um, did it change the game at the weekend? Yeah, almost certainly. Like Cipriani had played well. Uh, Gloucester were very competitive. Munster weren't playing that well. Um, and it ended up being, well, Gloucester scored in the last minute to to narrow the gap, such as it was, to 14 points. And I think we all predicted like a 20-point win for Munster and the fact that they'd be in the 30s and Gloucester would be in the low teens. And it was sailing serenely towards that until that sort of meaningless last-minute try. Um, but I I don't think anybody from Munster would be too happy with the performance, uh, given that it was against 14 men. Um, ah, there, was, there was good and bad. Like, Ty, Ty Byrne keeps getting better and better. Mm. And uh, talking, if we go back to the point about high shots and red cards, first half red, I was at the uh, Exeter cast match on Saturday in cast. And 
uh, ref John Lacey made uh, an unpopular call to give a straight red to cast number eight late in the first half for uh, a shoulder to the jaw of, of Jake Cooper Woolley. Cooper Woolley was actually ahead of the ball carrier uh, in a very... Obviously, these things happen very quickly. Cooper Woolley was probably always ahead of the ball carrier in an offside position, but he got absolutely clocked clean in the jaw, and as he collapsed backwards, he actually fell into the other tackle that was happening legitimately. Uh, so the ref conferred with his assistant refs, watched it again, and issued the straight red. And the Pierre-Antoine, or the Pierre-Fab now, is a noisy stadium, but... The noise when Lacey came out after halftime was uh, hectic. It was they, there wasn't cast don't seem to the, the cast supporters don't seem to bear any sort of ill will towards the team they're playing, but <laughs> they bore a huge amount of of ill will and grievance towards uh, the refereeing team. And cast went on to win that game, and it, it was it was an enthralling game to be at actually. Um, and it, I, I was there beforehand to see the teams arrive and to see how the cast team are welcomed and how the cast ultras uh, lead the cheering and the drum banging from people, the absolutely tiny kids. They had four four games of minis on at a half time, and like there might, there might have been four or five year olds, some of the kids playing it. So it's a really tight club and really really. Uh, demonstrative and loud, and again, like Claremont, it's the whole the whole village comes to the game. Um, so Lacey had two big calls to make in that one. One was one was the high shot, and one was a kick ahead by the cast team. Which the moment that he kicked the ball, he, he probably realised he'd kicked it too far. It was going dead, and he was never going to get it. But Henry Slade pushed him in the back. Obviously, the Cast fans wanted a penalty try for a cynical play, but a try probably would not have been scored because there's no. If he was Usain Bolt, he probably wouldn't have got to the ball. He wouldn't have got to the ball. So Slade still got the yellow card, uh, but Cast didn't get the result they were looking for in terms of that particular incident. But they managed, you know, they managed to hold out, and that was a game in which, uh, while it ended uh, at 14 men each with with Slade in the sin bin. Cass played the majority of the game with 14 men uh, uh, and, you know, came out came out on top against a decent extra team, an extra team who looked better than they'd done against Munster in the strong wind, but an extra team who have not, um, they haven't been impressive and they haven't delivered on their form in the English Premiership. Well, let me rephrase the uh, high tackle question uh, away from unpopular decisions away from home when like is it Cooper Woolley yeah when they get their clock cleaned and they're like boom gone to the ground when are they going to start sending off people for high tackles when the other guy doesn't get injured because that also doesn't happen well Cipriani didn't injure anybody okay doesn't regularly happen (laughs) just uh, when are they going to start doing it um it depends, it depends. It depends. When how many are going to sending it, off it, home it, players? <laughs> it depends how many players you, you're going to have left. Like, uh, I think there's going to be an. It'll be a period of adjustment. I, I think for the entire game, like Billy Twelve Trees was worse than Cipriani. 
but Cipriani was gone at that stage. And he wasn't going to put off, he just wasn't going to reduce Kloster to 13 men um, when Carberry could get back up. So to answer your question, no, they're not there yet. But players will get the message and, and they'll start tackling lower. Players will get the message and they'll start diving. They'll start pretending they're hurt to get players sent off. That is the message I would get if I was a professional. I'd be like, because I, of, I because got a high tackle, that hit my head. I'm going to stay down, make sure everyone knows it. Because it's an outcome-based decision rather than... Uh, yeah. When I say an outcome-based decision, it's down to a, an injury or perceived injury rather than... Like, if you bounce up out of it, the other guy is, is less likely to receive a harsh sentence. Absolutely. And I think the, tri- the Didn't tricky... Didn't even problem with it as well, by the way. <laughs> the, the tricky thing for rugby is that guys don't stay at one uniform level when they're running at the, with the ball. Like, bring up the Cipriani one again. Like, it was Scannell, wasn't it? Scannell, yeah. Scannell was not falling into but but Scannell was low. And he'd been sort of he'd been hit just before, or he'd been touched just before. So he was he wasn't at full standing height. Mm-hmm. Now, if Cipriani didn't know before the weekend, he should. He he definitely knows it now that he he just like, he has to drop the hips. He just like, he he can't leave him. He can't leave his shoulder up there at head height. And like these guys who are pros have a lot of physical coordination, but still, it's a difficult one when the guy is coming in. But you know, like, are, you, are we waiting for guys to get their skulls fractured before there's a censure? Because uh, your man, the Kiwi, whose name I can't pronounce, uh, Talafumaina, I think it was, didn't get sent off. I don't think he even got done on the siding commission. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, there is, I think, f- you can feel sorry for a player who's who gets sent off without without feeling that they didn't think you deserve it. Yeah. You know, and you can feel sorry for me. You go, well, that's the law is what it is. And if you realize that that's the direction rugby is heading in and it's not going to change and there's no point in railing against something which you can't change. Um, I don't I don't mean that because people are railing against things are right. They're, they're not right. Mm-hmm. Um and some some guys are more unfortunate. Like some some high shots are really nasty, and some high shots are accidental. And there is a difference. But the aim of the aim of the law change is, and the aim of the increased tariff is to make sure that players just tackle lower all the time now. What about the argument that if you reduce the post game bans, you'd have referees more likely to dish out red cards, on like. You're treating it like a technical infringement that you're just not allowed to do because it endangers safety rather than a moral sin, which is what it's currently treated as. That's like if you say, okay, you're, I'm going to dish out way more red cards, but you're only going to get a one-week ban or a two-week ban rather than like, we'll go and like consult the elders and see how many weeks you're banished well, the, from the, the game for. The, ba- the, the, the banishment of sinners is uh, an interesting point because uh, I was listening to one of... Um, the 42's podcast Murray Kinsler and, um, Sean Farrell isn't it? Andy Dunn oh yeah right he's really good um, but they were talking There's about competition <laughs> <laughs> they're still good um, uh, they were talking about the bands this was an older one um, they were talking about the bands which had been handed out to the iconic prop Robertson McCoy I think for stamping on Josh van der Fleer and also Matthew Bastro's ban for punching a guy in the side of the head when he was trapped in the round. He got, Bastro got five weeks and I think Robson McCoy got six. And they both said, like, these are weak 
suspensions. Really weak. Like the Bastro one, although typically rugby fans and players would have a much more lenient view on punching rather than stamping, like the Bastro one was outrageous. It was it was absolutely outrageous. It's the sort of thing uh, which should have seen him banned for months and months, like three months or six months. It was there was it was really appalling. The Robson McCoy one was also bad and should have seen him banned for you know two or three months. And so there's a strange. I can understand the idea that by imposing a ban on somebody, you make sure they don't do it again in terms of a high tackle. Like I'm just taking Kino mm-hmm. as the, the the key incident in this. Mm-hmm. But he got five weeks for an uh, essentially an accident, and uh, and Bastro got the same for a piece of cheap shot, a cheap Tuggery. shot, yeah. tug, act of tuggery. Which and I know it's overused, but if you did it. Uh, if you did it on the street or you did it outside a chipper in Bray, you, you, you'd get time in jail. Or a chipper anywhere. The, the game is miles cleaner than it was. Mm-hmm. And th- this is one of the, the topics of conversation that came up with fellas who had, I mean, at this stage, they'd retired quite a bit and maybe one of them, Les, was, was still playing. Um, and just saying that... The, the, so the influence of the amount of TV cameras and the sighting officer and all that sort of stuff, that's filtered down through the game. That people don't see it, that it's just condoned that you can just turn around and start smacking guys and then mm-hmm. go, oh, it's, it's grand, like we, we'll sort it out, out over a pint afterwards. So that's pretty much gone from the game for most people that play it. Mm-hmm. So most people, be it like schoolboy or youth rugby, be it a club sort of senior squad be it junior rugby which is still the biggest form of adult participation in rugby just because there's more people um because of the influence of like you know tv cameras and and, and the sighting commissioner but that didn't happen overnight um and this won't happen overnight so to, to answer your question it will take it will take a number of high profile refs uh, with you know taking that zero tolerance approach of of just sending off guys with with the match end with twelve players in one team, before teams will understand. Wow, and the guys won't get massive suspension. You know the guys don't get massive suspensions because like there's nothing in it for them. It's you know like it's you're not turning the result to your team. It's not like you're preventing seven points here. Like you're just sloppy. The only. The change will come when they start sending off all blacks. And that's not going to happen in the next two years. Uh, well, I think, it, I think it will happen if the all blacks... Not in the ta- World Cup. If the all blacks tackle... For example, and I know it's something which we've talked about before, particular incident, the Fekitoa, a lariato on Simon Zebo, which should have got, like, under any... Like, that could have happened in the 70s and it should have got a red. You know, um... Mm. But if that happened, if that happens in three weeks' time or four weeks' time, well, he, he will definitely get a red. Well, here's the thing: like they have, they can go to I, the, I, they I, can I, go to the yeah. telly ref. So if Sam Kane gets done for um, the shot in Henshaw, that's one red. And if uh, if Ekatoa decides to follow through in Zebo, already down to thirteen, that's a second red. But I agree with you. I mean, that's it's not going to happen. 
Do you don't you don't you don't no. think so? I I, do. I don't I don't agree that the referees have the gumption to start like upturning the game mid-season um, and face the criticism that they'd face. This brings us, I think this brings us full circle and, and probably closes off this conversation for as far, as far as we'll go because the the referees weren't acting in a vacuum. Bruce Craig had s- severely rattled the cage of the bosses and that word, this, this is my interpretation, mm-hmm. that word had filtered down and the refs were under uh, command to dish out red cards for high shots command like not just kind of ah lads like use your discretion command um, and that was the threat of legal action and that that will concentrate the minds sub question do you deserve, deserve to be high tackle for running across the pitch <laughs> <laughs> I was expecting a laugh there now I've edited that bit <laughs> someone needs to stop him some of the fans not happy with that it looks like we're avoiding the topic, but Leinster lost at the weekend. Uh, no red cards, but there was a, a conspicuous, I think, possibly a brain fart at the end by Johnny Sexton with a very odd decision to punt the ball when trying to play out of our 22 with a very limited clock. Um, I came up with a... Talk us through your complicated uh, my, 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 uh, my cobbled together theory was uh, roughly along the lines of Ultimately, this isn't a must-win game. It's not a grand slam. Leinster near their own line. If they give it away, a turnover or a penalty with three minutes on the clock, Toulouse can score a fourth try, put Leinster beyond seven points. That's too much. Just two group points mm. up for grabs. Kicking the ball, maybe it should have been more contestable, uh, but like putting the ball 50 metres up in the air with the possibility of getting it back is a... Low return play, but it puts territory miles away, and it means Leinster only lose that game by a point at the max. That is a strain. It wasn't a good kick. Yeah, I didn't understand when it happened. Um, It seemed to me to be a very rare, very poor uh, decision from Sexton, because I assume that when Sexton puts boot to ball that like 99 times out of 100 the kick turns out more or less like he intends it to turn out like that if he wants to put up and under he puts up and under, up and under it doesn't just you yeah, know he's not a hacker golfer it's not like to, Ian know. Madigan who had one kick <laughs> in terms of Madigan's kick which was like not very high not very long always to somebody <laughs> um, but every one of his kicks like his, his kicking, all of them all of his, all of his kicks yeah yeah <laughs> um, so I, I couldn't I couldn't understand I couldn't see the logic behind it I, I still don't see the logic behind it so I, I I didn't think overall that Sexton had the when you know when people say he didn't have his best game he clearly didn't have his best game you know he didn't even have a particularly good game he wasn't alone among the Leinster players in that um, but that that. That to me, it didn't. It didn't like sum up Leinster's efforts or anything like that. It was just a strange, un, unknowable decision uh, with with three minutes to go, with the ball in Leinster's hand and Leinster needing a point. I thought that when Toulouse scored, there was about nine and a half minutes to go after the touchline conversion, and that's 
a, a bad-ish place to be, but you still have quite a lot of time on the board. Like you have an eighth of the match left to get any form of score. So um, while while the clock had run down considerably before that that uh, kick from Sexton, I was uh, I just thought it was a just a bad decision from. I wouldn't be too. Um the damage was done before that by Sexton. I, I tweeted about it and I, I said it was the weakness of having Sexton as captain was that everything sort of ends up going through him and no one wants to contradict him. This is what it looked like to me because to lose, having got out to that superstart and having owned the, the first 15 to 20 minutes of the match and having got a lot of return for it, um, then defended very astutely about Leinster or against Leinster and that's like they didn't like they didn't contest the rooks, which is unusual um, for it to have an effective defence. And they played with a lot of line speed. And I suppose it's the let's call that the first way to attack. The second way to sorry, the first way to defend, and the second way to defend is to contest the rooks and is to contest the breakdowns. But Toulouse did that uh, in wider channels, um, and and they chose their moments to do it very well. So without meaning to contradict myself, there was a huge opportunity to attack Toulouse by picking and going through the rooks, and there was one bit of play on about 17 or 18 minutes when Keane Healy got the ball, did a James low, picked it up, haven't been tackled, and mm-hmm. just ran forward again. And Leinster went short around, and James Ryan got it next, and then Reese Ruddock made a big break. And they didn't get any return for it. Um, you know, perhaps a bit of composure, but that was the way to defend, to, sorry, to attack against how Toulouse were defending. And instead, Leinster just got the ball out to the midfield and got smashed behind the gain line because that's what Toulouse wanted to do. Toulouse wanted to smash them out mm. in the ring rows, Henshaw, Larmer, particularly, channels. Conan and, was out there quite a bit. And, and Ozzy and, made a great break for uh, Sean O'Brien's try, but also collected a lot of tackles. And and, and, and chopped guys down. But the, the thing about Conan's break was, he, it was off a switch. The play wasn't going wide. It was, it was coming back in. Leinster scored uh, a try off a mall, which ended up being a pick and jam, and then a try with the ball going back in from from Cronin. So the second one was off the side, the third one was off the out half. Um, but I felt that I wanted James Ryan to go, you're not getting it. Mm-hmm. We're picking and jamming. Yeah, absolutely. Keane's picking and jamming. Shawnee's picking and jamming. I'm picking and jamming. Nugget is picking and just blasting. Like it's short popping. You're not getting it. And is I don't think I don't think sorry. that Leinster. I don't think there's anybody in Leinster that has the personality to stand up to Sexton. And as good and all as he is, it's the issue when you have like an out half or a centre who's the captain and you know, wants to do it a certain way. Um, would that be akin to like the way we played against Scarlets in the semi-final of the uh, Heineken Cup? Or the, the, the one that we won or the one that we lost? No, the one we won. Oh, yeah. In the semi-final last year of the Heineken Cup where we just went through the middle an awful lot. I think, I think it's different in that the match against Scarlets, Leinster went out with the very determined way that they wanted to play it. Like they knew exactly how they wanted to play Whereas they had to react to the way the Toulouse were going to defend and they had to think on their feet and it, it, like it wasn't going to be pre-cooked. Mm-hmm. They just had to understand where the weakness was in the defence that Toulouse was playing and also where the weakness was in Leinster with the way that they were trying to attack against that defence. So it's very different. Mm-hmm. One is, one is uh, pre-planned and you've practised it and you've decided this is what we're going to do 
uh, for 10 minutes. And I, I also think that, like, really, if, if you're going to play a match, a big match, y- you need to have the game broken down into different, like, 420s or three, three-thirds. And you need to have a strategy about how you're going to attack in each of those bits of the game. Because it means that the defence can't settle. Yeah, uh, just absolutely in reference to that, Leinster, when they were preparing for that semi-final, you know, they had they had gone to the extent of having, uh, you know, Will Connors or somebody put on Ty Burns' bright blue scrum cap and single him out and say, "This is you have to act like this, so we can we can counter you, and we'll know what to do when the match is on." In the in the most basic terms, I don't think. That's because there's huge. There's there was so many games between Leinster and Scarlets over the previous, you know, eighteen mm. months. Whereas Leinster hadn't played to lose since the quarterfinal, sorry, the semi-final in 2011. Mm. You know, with a, a completely different to lose team. And Maidard, I think, is possibly to Corey as well with the holdovers. Maybe Bezzy. Was he still playing? Was he playing for to lose back then? He played for Cast, wasn't he? It was ages ago, anyway. Yeah, no, yeah. you're right. That's a good point. He was playing for cast, but you know, there there was no familiarity there. So you can, and because of that, Toulouse team was a particularly young team. It's not even that a team that anybody can be familiar with. Um, I absolutely agree with the idea that you pick uh, picking and going. So you you don't even play off nine. It's it's not playing off. Yeah, no, either of your halfbacks. Yeah, yeah. You, you just you know, it's and it is one of the best ways to change the shape of a game and you can do it really at any stage once you're outside your own 10 meter line you don't even have to be in the opposition half and it changes the game entirely like another one is is putting up a contestable kick that changes the game like it's instead of giving somebody a target to hit they might have a quick uh, uprushing defense and you put the ball up and behind them, and you know what you're going to do, and you can have men arrowing in to compete for the ball. It's it's a really quick way to change the, the shape of a game. I I was I mean the, the the one that always stands out in my memory, and it was such a <laughs> it was such it was a match. It was it was Leeds against Toulouse, and it was up in I can't say Leeds playing down the road. They don't. Um, it was Leeds Carnegie back when they qualified for Europe. So I'd say Stuart Lancaster was involved with the team. And they fanned out in defence and Toulouse were trying to go wide, wide, wide. And, and Leeds were, you know, they had the tie-in with the rugby league team. Um, and Leeds were doing very well in the first half. And then right at the beginning of the second half, Toulouse took in six phases on the right-hand side going narrow and ended up scoring on the left-hand side with a three-man overlap. They just, they just couldn't get touched. And it was a combination of picking and going and short in pops and it was all done so quickly that they just sucked in the Leeds players and they were better like you know Leeds were well organised but mm-hmm. Toulouse had loads of better players and it was like it, it's the club of Pierre Villepreux because what struck me was that like just how good Toulouse are like as a club and it reminded me of when uh, Juventus played Spurs last year and like Spurs were up you know with 20 minutes to go at home and then Juventus won and everyone was gone. Like, who are you going to back between Spurs and Juventus with Spurs with a goal head start with 20 minutes to go? It's just like, there's only one team. There's only one club that wins that. Um, and it's an unfair comparison. I don't, I'm not comparing Leinster to Spurs. Okay. I'm comparing Grant. Toulouse to Juve. Um, nah, Toulouse are 18 on for me. Anyway, um, 
can see where he's coming from. Sorry. Yeah. The, what about the argument then that I'm about to put forward that Leinster uh, scored 27 points away from home? How many do you want to have to score to, to beat them? Like, the problem wasn't that they were playing too rigidly off 10 and not enough through the middle. The problem was that they uh, conceded too many tries and, like, conceded two of the tries from a long way out. And admittedly, I think the third one was great. And the second try of the three from quite far out, albeit, again, very well finished. Yeah, I I think that when you're away from home, especially when you are away in France, that stress points that you didn't realise existed are shown up. Um, and it's, it's uh, I think, judging from Rhys Ruddock's interview that he, he gave afterwards, I think Leinster prepared. I don't think there was uh, complacency. I think Leinster desperately wanted to beat Toulouse in Toulouse. Um, but things happened uh, which maybe wouldn't have, which weren't expected. And, and stuff has happened like that before. I remember in the semi final two seasons ago against Claremont and Lyon. Um, Claremont went after East Tennessee was wing and and scored two tries in the first 19 or 21 minutes on the season and I would see it was off the pitch for him he'd been sinned in uh, but it was the last place anybody expected Leinster to have any sort of frailty and I felt that it wasn't so much that it was Nasiwa's frailty it was like we don't expect people to attack East Nasiwa uh, something like that if you recall that phenomenal quick skip three pass that uh, Morgan Power gave it was it was you know it was a work of art but I also recall a previous game against Claremont where it was the 12-9 game in a, in a group in 2012-13 where Leinster had done you know quite well in a low scoring match but it was the first game where I recall Toulouse just looking for where Mike Ross was in broken play and just getting the ball to a player close to Mike Ross so that player could run past him you know and it was it just sort of exposed Rossi's lateral movement for the first time like Mike Ross has made some good cover tackles he did make good cover tackles in his career and surprising ones but it wasn't so much that his ability to chase over short distance was it was actually his ability to move sideways laterally Mm -hmm. so sometimes things which you don't realize are issues get shown up and that, that tends to happen more often away from home and particularly the further away you are from home. So I think that's one of the one of the things that happened was some some stresses were shown up in, in Leinster's defence, especially, which um Leinster didn't know were there. And one of the great uh traits of the last I think it's two and a half, three seasons has been that any defeat has been learnings. You don't get beaten, you get learnings. Yeah, I also dislike the way learnings has replaced the word lessons. Lessons. <laughs> and I would revert to you. It'll be you will respond to me. <laughs> That's a learning for me. Um, so the curious thing is how how do Leinster respond? How how do how different do players? <laughs> how do they revert back to Toulouse in in January? Um, and some some guys maybe a bit long on the 
Tooth. Other guy, the guy I'm thinking of is Jordan Armour. Uh, rugby onslaught, who's the best, or maybe squidgy. It's between squidgy rugby and rugby onslaught for the king of rugby Twitter, in my humble estimation. And the he, he they just made the point that like Larmer is not a fullback, and <laughs> I have to say I agreed with them. And I think Jordan Larmer is a very good player, but I found myself really missing Rob Carney, and I, I had to double take and I went, I really do, just because for as much as you know my favorite All Black fullback was um, Christian Cullen, I, I do remember watching a match with Liam McDonald playing for the Crusaders against Queensland. And no matter where Queensland kicked the ball, Liam McDonald caught it and he killed him. Like, he just killed him. He just broke them. There was obviously, you know, 14 plus Crusaders on the pitch with the replacements, but they just couldn't get anything. And it was an incredible display of fullback play. And so often, I think we all think of, you know, the attacking fullback. Well, certainly, I mean, like my favourite two fullbacks are Christian Cullen and Serge Blanco, like the epitome of attacking fullbacks. Like, Mm. cruising in with that you know that long striding speed um, mine are Gerv Rush. and Gav Hastings by the way mine are both Aussies Matt Burke and Chris Latham who to me are they're the exact type of fullback so and they're not the same sort of player but for their, the differences that I always, firstly I like a, like a taller fullback I think is good um, both great in the air Matt Burke like Mr. Super Reliable. Leto, a lot more flair. But uh, sorry, that's a digression. But a lot more competitiveness. But it, it's it's an interesting one because of... Like Rob Carney's... Jared Payne's retired. Simon Zebo's in France. Never heard Jordan of that. Jordan Lamar. Well, the thing about Zebo, Jordan Murphy gave the best response to the Zebo question. Oh, yeah, when Gavin yeah. Komiski was pushing him. And Jordan was in the situation where he obviously played in, in the UK for like 14 or 15 years and got mm. picked for Ireland for the majority of that. And he just went, how much is he getting paid? Because I was in a discussion and I just thought about Zebo at the weekend and I just thought, oh, come on, anyone who is arguing the Simon Zebo article at this stage just wants an argument. Like is, is just putting it out there to get in an argument with somebody. Like everyone knows the IRFU stance. That Conor Murray didn't leave the country. Uh, Simon or Sexton Johnny Sexton who's the guy that everyone quotes like he left when the amateurs tried to lowball him and Joe and Joe Schmidt still picked him so that's the reality of that no one that Nusifora has uh, negotiated with and has left has got picked and they haven't written anything down and there's a discussion to be had you know about another scenario that we can do for another day but like Zebo knew what was going on so you go like who's going to challenge Rob Carney because Tiernan O'Halloran never seems to, to get the, the stick in time, which yeah. I can't understand. I really like him. Yeah, I like Tiernan O'Halloran as well. I've seen um, I've seen occasions where, well, Rob Kearney is often criticised for his defence. He like Some of Tiernan O'Halloran defending has been you know really poor. But O'Halloran couldn't get selected... Couldn't sort of get couldn't sort of get a fair shake when he had that monster season when Connacht won the uh, the Pro Twelve at the time. Yeah, and he was the form fullback in Ireland. Didn't he go over to South Africa and get absolutely cleaned out in high tackle? He did got a bit up, of red card. Upended and yeah. Yeah. yeah, he did. Uh, but yeah, he still never. Yeah, he it never. It never. He didn't get it, like it, that. Wasn't treated. If that had been Jared Payne getting upended, Jared Payne would have been in for the November internationals. Yeah. 
Yeah. You know? Okay, um, go, to go back then just sorry, to, yeah. to, to Larmer, like, um, he's not going to learn how to play fullback at winger. And that's and that's the thing. So the reason I brought up Larmer uh, was that I was unimpressed on playing fullback, but I've always been impressed with his ability to learn and to take on. And that, I think that that's where the, the whole learnings... To, re- to revert to the learnings. Um, that's where that conversation was going that I, I'm curious because he's, Larmer's had all this exposure and we're talking about him. Like he should be in the second or third year of the academy mm-hmm. and here he is starting a fullback away to Toulouse. Um, and I suppose the question is, can he can he make it his position? Like does, does he want to make it his position? Because if he does want to make it his position, that will be a very important signpost yeah. on the way to uh, what should be a great career. Because mm. Larmer's got the lot. Like he's got great balance. He's got quick feet. He's a good footballer. He can kick it. He's brave. There's nothing not to like. And as you say, you're not going to learn how to do it playing at uh, playing on the wing. And the other thing about uh, fullback for Leinster is there was a period where uh, in the squad... And this isn't going back years and years. This is going back three years and three years to seven years. Rob Kearney, Ethan Asiu, and Zane Kirchner were all in the squad. So at that stage, Billy Gardner. Dempsey was probably in it seven years ago. Yeah, I think he was. Oh, no, he wasn't. He retired at the end of 09 10. Oh, okay. Um, but the, they had they, they replaced Gerv with, with, essentially, they replaced him with, with Zane Kirchner. Yeah. Um, so there, there was a period when. Um, in the Leinster Academy at the time, or shortly after that, there were both Billy Dardis, who was schoolboy legend, and then Keen Kelleher. And both of those guys were in a position where they were one position players. They were they were fullbacks by preference and by trade, which and I think it's a distinct position rather than a back three player. Um but they were in it was hard to come by game time because you had the Irish international fullback, and then you had two non-Irish eligible players who were, you know, fullbacks, primarily fullbacks. So between those two players, Dardis not not really like Dardis never got a chance at at uh, at Leinster and is now you know Irish sevens captain. Kelleher left of his own volition to go to Connacht. And is, is playing quite a lot in the wing because O'Halloran's got 15 locked down there. The other, the other guy who mightn't be on the radar of a lot of people is Connor Nash, who's now playing in uh, Hawthorne. Hawthorne and Aussie Rules. He was a fullback by. Um, he was an aid for fullback. Yeah, uh, like born to it. Like, Navin's answer to Izzy Falau, you called him. Yeah, you know yeah. Uh, who's who was the guy who played. Uh, youths, Irish youths for two years, the captain Leinster youths for two years, and uh, as we said, is, is playing in the AFL. So there's there's nobody who has um, there's nobody really knocking around who's a fullback. There's like Jack Kelly is in the the Leinster academy as a fullback and captain the the Leinster A team to the Celtic Cup at the weekend. But the position is really there for for Larmer to 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 grasp. And, um, you know, in terms of Toulouse, I think it'll be a learning for him. Just watch this. Great possible play, though. This shows how dangerous they are with the ball in the hands. 
Um, this morning, David knew Sephora uh, was thrust in front of the public uncomfortably to mumble some vague platitudes about the future of Irish OP as a part of his four-year strategic plan. Is there anything useful we can draw from its conclusions or is this just the kind of thing that comes out every four years then we kind of forget about it? I'm thinking about in terms of like there was one of these four years ago and it probably had aims to reach a semi-final of a World Cup, win Six Nations, some of which we did, some of which we didn't do. But in real terms... What influence did that kind of strategic plan have on the production of players at Leinster, where it's been a massive success, and the production of players at Munster, where it hasn't, and Ulster, where it hasn't been a massive success, or the crucial issues surrounding coaches at Ulster, coaches at at, at Munster, and the like the things that they, the various things that they've gone through from the tragic death of Anthony Foley, Erasmus's succession and subsequent departure, to like kind of string of chaotic incidents with in Ulster like so loads value of, of a loads of strategic plan there. loads of questions yeah. and loads of good questions uh, that's a load of good questions um, the value of a strategic plan I think it's important that you have concrete goals that you have written goals that you try and attain now David Nusifora and probably probably the IRFU committee who are blazers as opposed to suits, are the ones who have come up with those uh, concrete goals, those written goals. I think if you... Most uh, successful athletes are goal-oriented people, that they will have things that they want to achieve. Uh, We've constantly referenced uh, Richie McCaw's great all-black piece of paper. Um, By putting it down, you challenge yourself so i think it's i think it can be very effective for on a personal level i think it can be very effective at a team level at an organization level there's only so much that david nusifora and the rfu committee can do to help ireland win a world cup quarterfinal they can do all in their power and in that way it's helpful in guiding their thinking if they consistently can refer to that in their heads is the decision on going to make and this is a decision that they'll make internally in their own heads because they'll have to convince themselves before they convince anybody else is the decision I'm about to make whether it's to rest a player or to encourage a player to move from one province to another or to spend money on keeping a player in Ireland is that decision going to help us to win a World Cup quarterfinal because getting to a semi is winning a World Cup quarterfinal so I think it's important that they do have written goals and that they can say, did we achieve them? Did we not achieve them? I would, yeah, I'd be slightly different. I think that the process is something that people concentrate on or the process has become uh, more prominent than, than having goals. I think, you know, when you sort of say we want to win, uh, see, you want to, we want to win a quarterfinal, we want to get to the semifinals is that what's what's outside of your control is the other team, whereas what's inside of your control is what you can do to put yourself into the strongest situation. So maybe splitting hairs, but I think I think it's an important distinction. I think two of the I think the the RFU is well run. The you can you can see how well Irish rugby has done in the last twenty years. Um most of which Philip Brown has been there. So it is well run. They have had strategic goals 
my impression is that they've helped them. I thought the press conference that they gave, I thought one was a bit of a red herring. The point that they, the point about Joe Schmidt and one of the biggest issues they just didn't talk about because they don't. So the one about Joe Schmidt being a red herring was that Ireland under kidney, when they had a strategic plan, like it all fell apart. So I think the biggest decision that the IRFU made, uh, biggest single decision was to appoint Joe Schmidt. Um, He's been brilliant for the national team and as much as we might talk about, or I might talk about process and the RFU might talk about it, about being a team and about being surrounded, like Schmidt's at the top, he's driving it, he's setting the tone, it's it's his focus, it's his sort of all-encompassing understanding of what he wants his rugby team to do that for a large part decides how well this Irish rugby team is going to do. In the same way that the sort of like that Stuart Lancaster made a big difference to Leinster, and that it was Leo Cullen that went to get like Stuart Lancaster wasn't foisted on Leo Cullen. Leo Cullen went to get him, so it fits into the way that Leo wants to do his business. And I think I think those appointments are huge; they're really significant. I also think that the biggest thing that they didn't talk about was the fact that we're not going to pick anybody who doesn't play in Ireland. They just didn't say it, and you go, "But hang on, like that's the central plank." of the IRFU's negotiating stance, of the IRFU's contracting stance. It's like, if you leave, you're gone. And they just didn't mention it. And you go, that is your strategy. Yeah. The other thing, because I, 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 I do agree with what you said about process. Um, while, while I think it's important actually to have a, to have a, to state a goal rather than to say, we're going to do as best as we can. We're going to do as much as we can. I think there's, there is, in, in any sort of business, you're not just saying we're going to, do all of this there has to, I think it's good to set a goal you know uh, I would also say I absolutely agree with you about Schmidt being the most important uh, person in Irish rugby the most important appointment in any rugby organization is the head coach the difference between like the difference in all the organization that surrounded Matt O'Connor and the difference in the organization that surrounded Joe Schmidt on one side and Leo Cullen and Stuart Lancaster on the other side is minimal. The difference of head coach was enormous. So the key thing is getting the right man at the top. Uh, and and Joe Schmidt is um, with no undue uh, shade thrown at David Nusifor. Uh, Joe Schmidt is far more important than David Nusifor. Um He's just Nusifora. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> um Sorry, could, could you go back to some of the other elements of your question there? So, um, amongst the planks um, to do with... That's harsh in the committee. Oh! <laughs> Our rugby gag! <laughs> so the, 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 the beams holding up his... Uh, his program, where it's like the continued development of uh, like all the provinces have to do better. Um, the the outgoing on the provin- provincial players by comparison to how much the provinces bring in was one of the things, and how like they can all improve. Uh, Leinster has a geographical thing that it, you know, and a geographical dominance. So it's no surprise that they produce most players. That is not that's true, uh, but it's sort of then it's like. There was a, clearly a, there was a, there was one of these plans four years ago, and they haven't addressed the production of players in provinces outside of Leinster. So, 
was it really their doing that Leinster actually did like sort themselves out yeah. or was it you know or like they're sort of like taking all the credit for the good things that the provinces have done and when they haven't done something it's like well it's down to the provinces there to sort themselves out I, it, it seems like a bit of like Lansdowne Road like <clears throat> saying look how much money our international team goes now everyone else's problems they're your problems we do all the good things that was yeah you know, the international team earns this much money and look, now we have to, you know, the provincial teams take 39% of our spending, but only earn 13%. You're going, how do you think professional rugby, how do you think that we provide, and do you think there's a better way of doing it, basically, of providing for a successful national team than outside the provinces? Do you think that you could have just... All your players playing in England and you wouldn't have any provincial overheads, and how do you think that would go down? Yeah, or would you rather... Sp- spread the players across a series of privately owned clubs. I don't know. Has that ever been done before? Well, I mean, to, to, to quote, go back to, or to address your first question, I'm sure they have some people who they share a stadium with that they could ask. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah. So everyone, it's it's been hammered home in at least the last two strategic plans that I've been, uh, that I've, I haven't read this one yet. But they do say it every time. You know, they, they want to reinforce the fact that the national team brings in a lot of money. And just one small caveat to that, the from from you know, I'm not sure if it really counts as news because it's it's a private commercial deal, but the rumor is that the Six Nations purse has gone down from an average of fourteen million per year down through nine million last year and possibly will be six million this year. So that's a very 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 significant decrease in the amount of money to be shared around aside from that the provinces are a really really good way to organize professional rugby in ireland and saying that they don't earn as much money as um saying that they they take more money to run than they earn um that doesn't mean that they're not good value yeah Absolutely, it's a virtuous circle, but they're sort of only given the virtue to half of it, it seems. Yeah, I, I agree. He says, uh, I think Nusifor, and I'll paraphrase him because I don't have the article in front of me, he says that all the employees of the provinces are Irish, uh, IRFU employees, just, I think, draped in provincial colours, um, which, you know, is on a on a bottom line of, a, of an... They, I think it's overheads, or maybe they count as provincial rugby when it goes into that split graph. That's true, but I'm, you know, I'd say that there's a lot of people who are employed by Munster or employed by Leinster and spend all their time working with Leinster or Munster or employed by Ulster and spend their time who see themselves as Ulster, Ulster men, Munster men, Leinster men first, and then employees of the IRFU second, and. That's a personal opinion. I don't think I'm wrong, though. Yeah, I, and like the IRFU does have to coordinate these things, and Ulster going down to to Lansdowne Road in 1999, uh, Munster getting their their pretty much all their naughties, their naughties odyssey of of Heineken cups. Ulster and Lansdowne Road excited Ulster far more than excited Munster. Munster excited you know a lot of Lunsters but it, it didn't excite Ulster that much like the, it, it, the idea of the politics being local 
the provinces really clicked with people in the regions um, as Leinster do with Leinster people mm-hmm. at the moment um, that success so yeah, and th- that kind of federal idea that works and like the IRFU stuff is coordinated I guess the other thing that they didn't say that I would be curious is TV deals and what would happen if the IRFU were to stream their own matches uh, were to own their own broadcast because Ireland are going over to play the Italians in Chicago it's the second time in three years that we're going to play a November match like the, Ireland New Zealand was on in Chicago that's a big game Ireland-Italy is a bigger one in terms of... 1920s New York ethnic rivalries. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't. I can't can't put it any better. Um, There's far more Italians in in America than there are Kiwis. So, you know, maybe they'll they'll sell out Soldier Field again. But, like, Ireland is the common theme there. So there obviously is uh, enough of an appeal, enough of a diaspora... um, and it's just not mentioned, but I see it myself. I see it in my own uh, habits of watching. Like, I watch far more on my phone. I watch as much on my phone as on my TV. I even find myself going towards my phone and watching stuff on YouTube or streaming stuff than watching on TV. And I sort of go, God, like, I'm not, I'm not that young. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm used to a different way of doing things. And you've got this whole generation of people or generations of people, like, younger than I am, that only know watching stuff through their phone. Like, don't think of going to the TV. The TV is just a bigger screen. That's that's about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, I'm just really curious about how do teams... So Ireland is a small broadcast population and it's in the same pool as England and, Fran- England and France who the argument is bring in much more revenue. Why shouldn't they get a bigger split of the pot? But they don't. And it's, it's shared out pretty evenly. And that's one of the things that's good. For Six Nations. For the Six Nations, yeah. And it's, it's the same idea as the Premiership, that rather than being like, you know, You can't Barca, have a league without the, without yeah. the smaller teams. Yeah, like, you know, you're... you're I was doing air quotes when I said smaller there. 20 teams get a share, you know, get a pretty equitable share of the revenue, and then there's prize money, but, like, it, you know, what's the thing? Like, the 13th richest team of the Premiership is still in the top 50 in the world, or the mm-hmm. top 30 in the world, mm-hmm. because there's so much money in the Premiership. Mm-hmm. And it, that idea of the equitable split is, is good for the entire league. And that's... That's been the bedrock of broadcasting professional sport for, what are we talking about, 25 years? Like, when did, when did the Premier League start? 1992, 1993? Yeah, well, so 20, 25 years. You know, football was invented. Um, and, you know, obviously America's sort of had that TV pay deal beforehand as well. And, and, and the same with, you know, in the NFL, that you have big markets like New York City, uh, and then you have small markets like Kansas City, and there's a salary cap so that a big market team just can't buy all the best players and that the league can continue to be a competitive league and thus it'll continue to grow into like this fucking world-eating behemoth that it is. But the NFL is available in tiny bite-sized snips on your phone all the time. Mm. You know, you don't... or And so is the NBA. They know how to... They know how to market. Like, people do have... It's not that they have a 15-second attention span. It's like... Oh, I can watch something cool in 15 seconds. But you can see the cool thing that LeBron did last night. Yeah. And you don't have to have a subscription. You don't have to have a subscription to two different broadcasters. Yeah. You know, but you only want to watch one thing on. Yeah. Um, 
I think that's a really. I hadn't thought of that at all. I think it's a really good point. And they just they didn't broach it, but it must be they must be thinking about it because they're bringing the team, they're bringing the national team over to Chicago to play the Italians. Like they're not doing that for the good of the game in, you know, wherever in Ireland. It doesn't matter. Like pick any destination. Mm. Other things. Uh, Won't we'll bring matches up to Ravenhill or down to Thomond, but they bring them over to yeah. Soldier Field. Yeah. yeah, Someone needs to stop him. Italy up first, Argentina second. Argentina usually rubbish on the. November tour, but seemed to be on a on a high with the uh, change of coach. Uh, New Zealand and then USA. We can definitely expect loads of debuts in the USA. What sort of team would you expect to see against Italy? And who were the who were the indispensables against the, the Kiwis? I can't see Schmidt going too far past anybody who was on the tour to Australia. I think that's the team. That's the group that he wants to. He, he loves. He loves his training squads. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think you. I'd be amazed if you see anybody, in the starting fifteen who didn't tour. I have a question for you, and it's more to do with selection in the home international, the first home international against Argentina, rather than the selection against Italy. To me, the selection against Italy is it's an unknowable. It's an away from home game against a Six Nations team out of season, the, the worst Six Nations team out of season. So I, I, I don't know what way to put it, but Argentina are a frequent uh, opponent in, in November in Lansdowne Road. Where would you stand on Hooker? I think really the, it's, it's where, do you, where do you stand on captain? Um, because the hooker is the captain. He didn't go to our... I'm going to contradict myself. The only guy who didn't go to Argent, to Australia who's likely to get picked is is Rory Best. He's, he, I think he will start Bestie for as long as he possibly can. I think the reason he'll do that is because... I think there's a few reasons. I think that Bestie's gone to the well an awful lot. I think guys who have had that huge personal satisfaction of having won tournaments and have that trust and belief in you know when, when you're appointing somebody or when you're uh, selecting somebody and you've had all this history you just can't ignore it um so that that's a massive plus for bestie i think as a captain besties are best communicator with referees and i think that until it is demonstrably proved by Bestie that he just doesn't have it in the legs anymore he will be the number one so I think is it going to be Scannell or is it going to be Cronin Uh, I would say he'll go for Scannell's more likely to start Cronin's more likely to be an impact sub Mm -hmm. I'd be interested to see how they combine um, between the the two matches the way um Dylan Hartley was used by Eddie Jones in the last season, England's least successful season under Jones, where he was captain, named captain, uh, and was taken off the first sub off generally. Do you think that is a potential outcome with Best at 36 years old? I think, no, I think, um, well, it's potential. I'd, I'd be surprised by it if he if he did it that way. I thought that was more down to Eddie Jones' lack of imagination that he'd come in and he'd he'd wanted to change the culture and going from being squeaky clean to 
picking like the the number one bad guy as the captain was the best way of dem- and and that worked really well but then he couldn't change it up so he just kept on going back to it um even when he wasn't really worthy of his place anymore but you know you absent the bad guy thing yeah you could see with bestie i omani did such a job of captaining the team that i think he'd be he'd sooner have just appoint omani as captain and jettison bestie I don't, I don't think Best gets picked if he's not captain. And I think Oman is the obvious guy to take over. And then where do you stand on centres? Given the centres, we had a huge amount of change throughout the Six Nations from Aki and Henshaw to Aki and Farrell for one game, a game in which I'm, I'm a huge... Uh, Robbie, Henshaw's, Robbie Henshaw's one of, if not my favourite player... So I could never leave him out. And Ringrose is the the best number thirteen. So that would be my combo. And like, geez, Bundy. If you had, you could bring Bundy, in and you'd be delighted to have Bundy. And I guess this is this is the this is the thing about having depth, is that some guys are going to lose out, and it's it's a great selection. Have so they'd be that be my combo. And what have you seen from Carberry this season, which you hadn't seen in? previous seasons for him I've seen him play more at number 10 it, it's one of the really popular use the word shibboleth it's 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 become an accepted truth that more minutes just equals automatic improvement I think I think that's the way the equation is read mm-hmm. and it's not far off like more minutes is one of the you go back to the Jordan Armour like he's not going to learn how to play fullback by not playing fullback Um made him a better out half how much of a better out half has it made him Jory Jory is out Ross Byrne looks a better out half than he did in in any season previous so does Joey is is Carberry improving at a rate fast enough to put the same sort of competition on Johnny Sexton no not from what I've seen three second rows two starters and one off the bench Toner and Ryan who's off the bench Hendy Where's Tygburn? Covering. Depends what sort of it's it's depends what sort of split you go with. So if you've got Carberry as your uh, sub out half, you can go. He can cover fullback, uh, and then so you got to have a scrum half. So then do you have somebody else subbing in the back line, or do you want to go with six forwards now? Like the it's very rare that you're going to do it. You're going to want to go. Hendy covers number six. You talk about Sean O'Brien. We talked about Sean O'Brien extensively playing as a number 20. So let's say you go with Levy, Omani and Stander. I'd have... I'd have Shawnee. If I had Hendy on the bench, I'd have Shawnee and I would I would have Hendy. Um, and... This probably is is where you sort of this is this is where the sort of the selection for sort of selection for the Italian game is very curious. What happens if Ty Burns starts? What happens if Rory Best is your test captain for the Italian match, and Ty Burns is your number six and has a blinder, and the two second rows both have blinders, and one of them isn't. Well, two second rows pick from Hendy Toner and James Ryan, mm. and they both play great. You know what? What happens then? That's a, that's a, that's the situation you hope to be in. 